Well, friends, we are concluding a seven-sermon series this morning in the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the time of year where people are in and out of town, so I realize there are some of you here today, maybe for the first time, and maybe others who have certainly not been here for all of the previous six messages in this series. Those sermons can be found on our website or on a podcast app of your choosing. I would commend those to you, especially if you're showing up today, and this is the first of these parable sermons you're hearing. Listening to some of the other ones would give you a more full-orbed presentation and understanding of how we aim to approach the parables as a portion of God's Word, and it would also give you a more full-orbed understanding of the things that we have learned and gleaned together from the parables of Jesus Christ over recent weeks. So I leave that to you. By way of introduction this morning, I want to reiterate some of the things that we have seen and some of the things that we have considered. If you're newer, I hope this is helpful to you. And if you've been here for all of these sermons, I hope that this is helpful to you in continuing to catechize us and remind us of what's true. Jesus uses the parables to communicate redemptive historical realities. He uses them to communicate realities of redemptive history, realities of salvation and judgment. He also uses them to communicate the true state of things amongst God's people, to communicate what's going on amongst the people of Israel, or maybe what's been going on in Israel for centuries. Jesus uses the parables to teach us about the kingdom of God, about the kingdom of heaven. He teaches us what the kingdom of God is like. He teaches us how it's built. He teaches us how it works. And we've said this pretty much every week. We'll say it again this week. The kingdom of God does not work like we think it would work. And in our fallenness, it often doesn't work like we think it should. In the parables... Jesus is typically communicating a major point. So we want to be careful when we go to the parables not to nail our interpretation to the wall. What I mean by that is we don't want to extrapolate and allegorize every little detail of the parables. Jesus in these parables is communicating big truths, redemptive truths truths, law and gospel truths, and those are what we should look for. The parables, as we've considered, show us ourselves as we really are. They expose our hearts. They expose our minds. They crush, they smash, they shatter, pick your word, our deluded notions of our own goodness and our misguided notions of our own righteousness. Lastly, the parables are not morality tales. We've said this many times, we'll say it again, you get to hear it one more time at least. The parables of Christ are not Aesop's fables baptized. They are not a Christian version of Aesop's fables, some morality lesson. We don't go to the parables simply for a moral takeaway. So admittedly, as you're sitting there processing some of those things, admittedly, we've got to leave some baggage behind. We're familiar with the parables, many of us, who by God's grace have grown up in the church or have been in the church for some time. But because we're familiar with the parables, there's some less than good understandings that we need to leave behind, because many of us have never heard them taught the way that I've just described. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be looking today at the parable of the ten minas. Some people say minas, some people say minas, I think we're going to say minas today, all right? So the parable of the ten minas from Luke 19, 11 through 27. Now many in the room might be aware that there is another parable that is similar to this one in Matthew's Gospel. The parable of the talents from Matthew chapter 25. That is a similar parable. Yet, it is very clear that the parable of the talents and the parable of the ten minas should be seen as different parables 
told to different audiences. In Matthew's account, again Matthew 25, Jesus has already entered Jerusalem. The triumphal entry has already occurred. In Luke's account, he is still on the way to Jerusalem. The parable of the talents in Matthew is a portion of what is called the Olivet Discourse. The parable of the ten minas in Luke is told to a group of people in Jericho in the context of Jesus having spent the day with a tax collector named Zacchaeus. So with all of that by way of introduction, let's look now to the text. Beginning in Luke 19 and verse 11. Listen as I read. This is the word of God. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your minna has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. So my plan this morning is this. I want us to first consider the context and the occasion for the parable. If you've been here for several of these, you'll be used to this. The context and the occasion. As always, that's important. So that's the first piece. The second piece of the message will be the parable itself. We're just going to walk through it, observe some things. And then beyond that, I have four points for our consideration. So occasion and context, the parable, four points. That's our plan for this morning. So let's consider the context and the occasion. This is verse 11 and what precedes. So if you put your eyes on verse 11 at the very beginning, we read these words. As they heard these things. Now this indicates that we are stepping into the middle of something. Some stuff's been happening. Some stuff's been said. People are hearing it. So what is that? Verses 1 to 10 of Luke 19. The account of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Just briefly here, so we're aware of what's happened. Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, passes through Jericho. And in Jericho, there's a man named Zacchaeus. He is rich, and he's a chief tax collector. If you've been here for recent weeks, you know it's not good. Chief tax collector means, in one sense, chief of sinners. So that's who this dude is. He wanted to see Christ. Zacchaeus did. But because of the crowd, he couldn't. And we're told he was a short guy. So he goes down the street, gets ahead of where Jesus is walking, climbs up in a tree. 
And then Jesus, coming to the place where Zacchaeus is, looks up into the tree and says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus comes down, hurries down out of the tree, and receives Jesus joyfully. People in the crowd, certain of them anyway, grumble when they see this. This is typical. This is a typical refrain. They grumble that Jesus has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. We're going to come back to some of these things, but I just want you to be familiar. Then Zacchaeus, in his exuberant joy, pronounces, I'm going to use everything that I've got for the good of other people. And if I'm wrong, people, I'm going to make it right. And then Jesus pronounces, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Son of Abraham by faith, right? A spiritual child of Abraham. And then he adds, Jesus does, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. All right, so that's the, these things that they have heard. Now, who are they? As we've already said, onlookers at Jericho are they. They're people who grumbled because Jesus had gone in to be the guest of a notorious sinner, a tax collector named Zacchaeus. And while we're not told specifically who they are, there are reasons to understand them to be Pharisees and possibly scribes, or certainly for there to be Pharisees and scribes amongst this number. In the Gospels, the Pharisees are the primary ones to grumble about this very thing, that Jesus is spending time with tax collectors and sinners. That language of grumbling about Jesus doing that is used of them particularly. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, for example. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They heard Jesus pronounce salvation upon a chief tax collector and call him a son of Abraham. They heard Jesus say, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So hold on to that. So Jesus is talking to a group of people, most likely Pharisees, or certainly Pharisees amongst the number, who resent the fact that he has shown mercy to a rich tax collector who then is exuberant about the fact that he will use what he has for the good of his neighbor. Let's say that again. Jesus is talking to a group of people who resent the fact that he has shown mercy to a rich tax collector who then is exuberant about the fact that he will use all that he has for the good of his neighbor. And then Jesus proceeds to tell a parable. You see why context and occasion matter, right? That's just an aside. It matters. Why does Jesus tell the parable? We're going to get some more information from Luke himself. Verse 11, put your eyes back on it. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Why? Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Let's take those phrases one at a time. Why did Christ tell the parable? In addition to the context we've already considered. Because he was near to Jerusalem, he told this parable. In Luke 9 and verse 51, we read these words. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. When the day drew near for him to be taken up, crucified, to die, be buried, to raise from the dead, and ascend. When that 
day is coming. In particular, the day of his crucifixion. When he would be lifted up. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus had been intentionally, pointedly headed to Jerusalem for a minute. And he is headed there with great resolve. Listen to these words of the servant of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 7. Where the servant of the Lord... So here, the words of Christ, right? These, the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Jesus was near to Jerusalem and he had set his face like a flint to go there for what? To die. Well, to die for what? The sin of his people. Hold on to that. We also read that he told a parable because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So the Jews were looking for the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior. But they had misunderstood, at least in large part, many of them had misunderstood the purpose of his coming. All of this becomes even more evident in the triumphal entry that's recorded immediately after this parable. The Jews did not expect the Messiah to be one who would come in the form of a servant, who would come to suffer and die. They expected the Messiah to come in triumph and overthrow the Gentile occupiers of the land, i.e. the Romans. They expected the Messiah to save them in that sense. They expected that the Messiah would come and set up his kingdom on earth at that time. Which certainly would have included a place of prominence for the religious establishment. Now, Jesus had come to save his people. Amen. He had come to deliver them, but not from Rome. He had come to inaugurate the kingdom of God in a pointed way. consummation of the kingdom, its final appearing, would not come immediately. Between his first coming to inaugurate the kingdom and his second coming to consummate it, the kingdom would continue to be built. It would be built through his people, those whom he had given the gift of salvation, those whom he had given the gift of being a part of it all. So hold on to that. One last note before we get to the parable itself. This parable is without question a call to repentance. But perhaps not exactly and precisely in the way that you would think so. It is a call to agree with God. It is a call to know him as he has revealed himself. It is a call to believe the gospel, to trust Christ, and then to live in Christ and bear fruit. So let's look at the parable in more detail. So that brings us to our second portion here, the parable itself. We're just going to observe it. Maybe you're familiar, maybe you're not. Either way, we're going to look at it together. Beginning in verse 12, we read the parable. So Jesus tells us a parable about a nobleman who goes into a far country to receive a kingdom and then come back. Now this would not have been lost on the audience because Herod Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, would have had to do this exact same thing. He did not receive his kingdom there in Judea. He had to go to Rome to receive it and come back. And then this nobleman who goes into a far country to receive a kingdom in return calls ten of his servants before he goes and he says, here's ten minutes, here's money, and engage in business. Go do business until I come again. Then we read that there's a portion of his citizenship at least who does not like him. And he makes it very clear that they do not want him to reign over them. Then he comes back, having received the kingdom. And he asks that the servants who, to whom he had given money be brought before him so that he could see what they had gained by doing business. So the first servant, one of the ten, comes forward. The first one. And he says, Lord, here's the minna that you gave me and it's become ten. I've turned one into ten. And he's commended. Well done. Good servant. And he will have authority over ten cities, we're told. The second servant comes. 
and says, Lord, here's the minna that you gave me. I've turned it into five. And he says, he's commended, and he will be over five cities. Then finally another servant came. Another one of the ten comes. And he says, Lord, here's your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. I wrapped it up, put it away. The reason I did that is because I was afraid of you. Because I know that you're a severe man. You're threatening, you're exacting, you're harsh. You take what you didn't deposit. You extort from people. And you reap what you didn't sow. So that's his justification for what he did. To which the nobleman, now the king, right, says to him, I'm going to condemn you with your own words. You have just damned yourself. Because if you really thought what you say, if you really knew me to be that kind of a man, you would have at least put the money in the bank and earned some interest. And then he says to those by, take the one minute that that guy's got, that wicked servant. He calls him wicked. He says, you're a wicked servant. I'm going to condemn you. Take the one minute he's got and give it to the one who's got ten. And the people looking around, again, like, this isn't right. This ain't fair. He's already got ten minutes. Why are we going to give the minute to him? And then this from verse 26. We're going to come back here in a minute. This is pivotal. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And then the king speaks to his enemies that didn't want him to reign over them, and he says, bring them here and slaughter them. It's a picture of judgment. So that's the parable. Four points for our consideration this morning. Number one, this is really a point of explanation. We're just going to go ahead and deep dive with respect to the wicked servant. Who is he? What's he representative of? The wicked servant. And I'm going to go ahead and lay my cards on the table. You have your scripture in front of you. You could judge my exposition and my understanding. I understand that Jesus, in communicating these truths in this parable, the way he conveys the wicked servant, we should not understand the wicked servant to be a true servant of the king. We should not understand the wicked servant to be a true servant of the king. We're going to think about this at length. Bottom line, why do I say that? Because the wicked servant did not know the king. Let's just start there. The wicked servant did not know the king. That's obvious in the parable. Verses 20 to 23 are strong language. The wicked servant says, here's your minna that you gave me. I hid it away because I was afraid of you because here is what I know you to be. I know you to be severe. Again, harsh, threatening, exacting, frightening. I know you to take what you don't deposit and reap what you don't sow. You gain from people over whom you rule. You extort. You take things that don't belong to you. That's the kind of man you are. That's the kind of king you are. He doesn't know the king. He doesn't know the character of the king. That's significant. In addition, the king calls this servant wicked. Calls him wicked. That's not a neutral word at all. Evil. Then there's verse 26. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. He says this about the wicked servant having his minna taken and it being given to the one who has ten. What do we make of that? Jesus talks just like this, verbatim, other places in the Gospels. Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8. It's always good to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Matthew 13. 
right after Jesus has told the parable of the sower. These words. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. For to those, so how do we understand that? To those whom it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, more will be given, namely eternal life and blessedness. But for those to whom it has not been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, even what they have will be taken away. So for those people, if you're the kind of person that even what you have is taken from you, you are not a person who knows the secrets of the kingdom of God. Luke 8, again, after Jesus has told the parable of the sower. It occurs in a slightly different way, though. No one, he says, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. So Jesus there is talking about a light and a lamp and things being hidden and then things being manifest. He's talking about himself. He's talking about the word concerning him. About the mystery that has been hidden for ages in God that is now to become manifest in and through him and his work. And he says, take care then how you hear. For those who hear and receive the word about him, more will be given. But for those who do not receive the word about him, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. So what's the point that I'm making here? I think you're with me. Verse 26 of Luke 19. In the parable, Jesus uses language that he's used at other points to talk about the difference between those who are a part of the kingdom of heaven and those who are not a part of the kingdom of heaven. It seems, you judge for yourself, right? It seems that the first two servants in our parable are representative of those who are in Christ, who are good soil that produce fruit. And it seems that the last servant, the wicked one, on the other hand, is not good soil. In addition to this, there is the parallels to the parable of the talents where the wicked servant in that parable has a very similar, if not identical, estimation of his master. He does the same thing with what he's given, buries it, because he's afraid. He also has everything he has taken from him, and then is thrown into the outer darkness explicitly. Now, why am I spending time to make it clear that this wicked servant should not be seen as a person who has been united to Christ. We should see him as a Christian who has failed. Why am I taking that time? It's because of how this parable is often used. It's because of how this parable is often preached. It's used, frankly, to scare well-meaning saints. It's used to erode assurance in order to motivate people to action. That's not how the parable is to be used. Remember, Jesus is talking to people, the Pharisees and everybody there, who have all kinds of gifts from God. They have the law, they have the covenants. They have the oracles of God. I mean, this is the language of Paul in Romans. So Jesus is talking to people who have all kinds of gifts from God. And he's talking to people who think that the kingdom is coming now. 
Now, his word here is absolutely to unsettle them. No doubt about that. Because he would become a stumbling block of offense to many of them. And they would be crushed by that rock. Whereas the church of God is built upon that rock. That's point one. Point two. This effectively, not creative heading, is a reflection regarding the gospel from this text. We're going to reflect on the gospel pointedly, the good news. I want to reiterate, what was the servant's perspective, what was his take on the character of the king? Harsh, exacting, threatening, frightening. An extortioner. An oppressive ruler. But let's consider the king. Because clearly, Jesus is representative of the king in the parable. Jesus, we have already thought about it, had set his face toward Jerusalem for what? To die. To die for what? His own sin? Not hardly. He had set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem to die for the sin of his people. He took upon himself the sin of others and paid the penalty for their sin in their place. He took the justice of God that sinners deserve upon himself. He took the wrath of God that sinners deserve upon himself. Now, using the language of the parable, all that, that's some taking what he didn't deposit. Amen? That's some reaping what he didn't sow. Amen? In addition, he gives his people his own righteousness to be their righteousness. He gives his people his perfect, pure garments to wear. He says, take off the stained and muddy garments you got on. Put these on. They've been washed in my blood and made white. Wear these. There's something that Christians have talked about for a long time called the great exchange. Where Jesus takes our sin, corruption, wickedness, vileness, all of the wicked, gross desires we have, all of the evil, wicked thoughts we have, all of the mean, cruel things we've done, the corruption of our nature, he takes that. And then we, in return, get his perfection. A life lived as a human being in perfect obedience to the law of God every moment. So it turns out, ironically, it turns out that Jesus does, in fact, take what he didn't deposit and reaps what he didn't sow for us. And it turns out that we receive what we didn't deposit and reap what we didn't sow. And as we delight in here, by faith, apart from anything we do, we receive this. And on account of Christ, even though we've broken every commandment God has ever given, even though we've never kept one, really, and even though we still struggle and are inclined toward all evil. We have been counted with the satisfaction, the holiness, and the righteousness of Christ. And it is as though we have never sinned or been sinners. And it is as though we have been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. Jesus understood his mission, beloved. He understood the assignment. He fulfilled all righteousness. He told John the Baptist that's what he's doing. John was wigging out about baptizing Jesus. You remember this? Matthew 3. And he's like, I didn't write that I would baptize you. And Jesus says, no, it's appropriate that we do this so that what? All righteousness might be fulfilled. Christ didn't need it. He did it for us. He then 
died in the place of his people. He set his face like flint in order to accomplish what he had come to do, in order to accomplish what had been planned for him to do from all of eternity. Saints, this is Christianity. We talked about how the parables are so much more than morality. So is the Christian faith. The morality of Christianity is not what makes it utterly unique in the scope of world religion. It's the message. There are many devout people of other religions across this planet. But ain't nobody got a message like this. That from all eternity, this was the plan. And he, having taken on flesh, assuming the form of a servant, with great resolve and determination, sets his face like flint to Jerusalem to go and do what he and the Father had planned he would do. And then, even in his life on earth, which is very representative of how God works still, Jesus sought out and found his sheep. Consider Zacchaeus a chief tax collector. It's the context where this parable is told. He's rich. He's a sinner. He's maligned. Jesus seeks him out, says, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. What a sweet word. And then a pronouncement that today has come to this house salvation, since he also is a child of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Beloved, it's the same with us. He sought Zacchaeus out. He seeks us out. Which leads us to point three. We are to serve God, but not out of dread. We are to serve God, full stop, but not out of dread. So I want to clarify something. The phrase, the terminology, fear of the Lord, is used in a good way throughout the Scriptures. But that fear of the Lord, for example, think Proverbs 1, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, that. Or Psalm 103, right, to those who fear Him, He is compassionate, all of that. That kind of fear of the Lord used in a good sense is speaking of awe and reverence and a real true understanding that draws in. Versus the kind of fear and dread where God is frightening, he's scary, he's harsh that drives away. Do you understand the difference? There's a kind of fear that is awe-based, that is reverent, that understands, that's repentant, that draws in. And there's a kind of dread and fear that drives away. It's that latter piece that I am saying, that's not why we serve the Lord. The servant in the parable thought the king was hard, severe, and threatening. He thought he was frightening. He even says, I was afraid of you. When in reality, as we have considered, Jesus is the king who takes on our sin, dies for us, and gives us everything that's his. He saves us. He makes us his own. Out of sheer grace, out of extravagant mercy, out of steadfast love, he says, you're mine. He chooses us. He takes us to himself. He tells us everything that's mine is now yours. He gives us gifts. He gives us all of that. And then he says, now go and do business. Go and do business. It's not a threat. It's not drudgery. Doing business for the king? It ain't like going to the DMV, yo. This is a joy and a privilege. Here are these gifts. They're mine and I'm giving them to you. I'm not going to take them back. Live in them. Live in this freedom. Live in this joy. Live in this peace. Now go and do business. Okay, interjection. I'm going to have two of them. So kind of in your brain, step aside right here. Out of the flow. We'll plug back in in a second. Interjection number one. The reward that we receive for the business we have done, because we will be rewarded, is all of grace. 
So I would refer you to the parable on the laborers in the vineyard from Matthew 20. It was preached a few weeks ago. If you haven't listened to it, give it a listen. You'll get more depth on this idea there. Our labor and our sacrifice for the Lord does not in any way obligate him to pay us. Our works could never stand on their own before God and they will be rewarded because they are done in faith on account of Christ. It's for Christ's sake that what we do will be rewarded and commended by God. The fact that God, like honestly assess yourself, beloved, the fact that God would look at me or look at you at the end of all this and say, well done, enter into the joy of your master is further evidence of his goodness and grace. That's interjection number one. Interjection number two. Even speaking from a pragmatic perspective, fear and dread are terrible motivators. It's ineffective over the long haul. You might produce something in the near term, but it's sparkle and fade, man. It does not last. The parable reflects that. Fear and dread paralyze. Fear and dread produce bitterness. Fear and dread results in people who are ineffective when it comes to work of eternal value. Second Peter chapter 1. You don't need to turn. You can listen. If you want to turn, if you're that kind, that's great. Go for it. I'm, I'm trucking along though. Peter writes... To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, that's the apostles, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. There's some words. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, he goes on. 2 Peter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. He's generous. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, which, by the way, are irrevocable. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, because God's done all that, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Amen. And your virtue with knowledge. Amen. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. Amen, that's good. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. We're talking about bearing fruit for Christ. If these things are true of you and they're increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities, what's the problem? Is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Gospel amnesia is the problem. We want to be effective. We look to Christ always. So that was a interjection number two. Back in point three. Consider just some more of the witness of the scriptures to us. Thinking about serving God but not out of dread. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. May we believe that. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. That's 1 John 3. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So in short, saints, fear and dread is how we would relate to a harsh taskmaster. Fear and dread is how we would even relate to a judge. But it is not how we relate to a loving father. Point four.
This is our conclusion as well. Jesus has gone to a far country. He will return. And in the meantime, we are not alone. Say it again. Point four. Jesus, like the nobleman in this parable, has gone to a far country. He will return. And in the meantime, we are not alone. So Jesus, right now, reigns. He reigns. It might not always feel that way, but he does. We can't see it, but he does. He is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And at the same time, the Spirit of Christ, His Spirit is with us. He is at work in us. He is at work through us. He regenerates His people unto eternal life. He transforms and conforms His people anew into the image of Christ. Take heart in knowing that Jesus reigns. He governs the church by his word. He guards the church and protects it. He gives gifts to the church. He nourishes the church with his grace and his mercy and his love. He upholds the church by his power. In other words, he supplies the church with everything necessary for the salvation of his people. And he does all this while restraining all the hatred and the fury and the schemes of the evil one. But here's the thing. We don't see with our eyes. We don't see all of that. It's not visible to us in our flesh. We can see the fruit of it. But we can't see it. And so that's why it is rightly said biblically that Jesus will appear. He will manifest himself on the last day. He reigns now, but he will appear and manifest himself in the end. And then we will see it. We will see him with our own eyes. As the Book of Common Prayer says so beautifully at the burial of the saint, with these, not other, but with these same eyes, I will see the Lord. May we live in the hope of that day. But in light of all that, Christ's reigning and his return, in light of the hope of that day, what is our calling now? In short, it's to be faithful. It's to work. And by work, I don't just simply mean vocation. I mean work in the building of God's kingdom. To serve. To give of ourselves for the good of our brethren, the good of our sisters, the good of our neighbor. It's to use what God has given us all for the building up of the body of Christ. That's our calling. To use everything we have for the good of our brothers and sisters, everything we have for the good of our neighbor to the praise of God's glorious grace. Beloved, we serve a great king. A great king. A king who has shown us grace in that he has given us what we don't deserve. A king who has shown us mercy in that he has not given us what we do deserve. And a king who has showed us steadfast love, unswerving, always faithful. A king who has forgiven our iniquity and our transgression and our sin. A king who gives us all kinds of good gifts, the first of which is being a part of his kingdom in the first place. And upon giving these gifts, he says, now go and do business. Now I trust, we're near the end, I trust that in your heart, you are thinking, amen. I want to serve him. 
I'm going to serve him. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to use what God has given me for the good of the body of Christ and for the good of my neighbor. Like Zacchaeus, who joyfully receives the Lord and it says, I'm going to do good by people. I trust that's what you feel and what you think. And real talk. There may be a part of you that's thinking, but man, this world has fallen. And things just don't go well sometimes. Our efforts can feel futile. Our labor can seem fruitless. You might also be thinking, like, bro, I'm a sinner. I don't understand my own actions. Like Newton said, John Newton, I'm a riddle to myself. I don't understand myself. I want to serve the Lord, but yet often I find myself not doing that. So what can we say to those things? We can say that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. We can say that he who calls you is faithful and he, the God of peace himself, will sanctify you completely. That he will surely keep your whole spirit and soul and body blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can say that the God of peace brought our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead who is the great shepherd of the sheep. And that by the blood of the eternal covenant, he will equip us with everything good that we may do his will and will work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. We can say that God has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Knowing that, we press on. We work, we labor, we serve. We await and anticipate the return of the king. And when he comes, he will come to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Amen. Let's pray.